tonight is from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 36. Uh, You can find that in my Bible, it's on 1024, Uh, but if you're having trouble then uh, you can ask someone around you. So Matthew chapter 14, starting from verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennariset. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched him were healed. Well, friends, good to see you all here this evening. Uh, We do have one more announcement, and that is Chris will be on leave from tomorrow for two weeks. And, of course, you know what that means, right? It means while the senior minister is away as a church family, we be quiet, no, (laughs) we behave. (laughs) But we do wish uh, Chris and Rose a wonderful uh, time away to freshen up so that they can come back and serve us even harder. How good is that? Uh, well, we'll be looking at this passage, so do keep your Bibles open to Matthew 14. Uh, but it is a passage we all know and familiar with, but we still need God's help. This is his word to us, so let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you do speak to us, you, you reveal yourself clearly to us in your word uh, through your Son. And so we pray that as we consider Jesus and what he did, that we might know him more, know his power and know how we are to have faith in him and respond appropriately. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Bible is filled with passages that describes God to us, describes the wonder and the glory and the majesty of God to us. There are passages that that actually just puts us in our place. It makes clear, you are human beings. You're just people. God is God, you are not. You're human beings and so don't be so foolish in thinking that you're at the same level as God. There are passages which shows to us the glory of God, the power of God, his immense, awe-inspiring power. And one of the favourite passages of mine 
is this passage in Job. If you know the story of Job in the Old Testament, he was a guy who had a tough life. He had a rough patch. He had a wonderful life, but then all was taken away and he was angry. He was really angry with God. But, but God's response to him was so wonderful, so profound. God put, God placed Job in his place. You're a mere human being. This is my power. This is who I am. And so in this passage, God turns to Job towards the end of Job. And God says to Job, well, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, what's Job meant to say? Well, he wasn't even born yet. He wasn't nowhere around. And God continues to say to him, well, did you give commands to the morning and show the dawn its place? That is, do you control the weather, the seasons, the time, the sun? What's Job meant to say? Well, of course not. I have no idea what to do there. Do you know where I store the snow and the hail, Job? Of course, Job was to say, well, I have no idea where that comes from. Do you control the lightning and thunder and winds across the earth? What's Job meant to say? Well, of course, I have no idea. Do you send the lightning bolt on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Do you command the lightning bolt, Job? Of course not. Who has wisdom to count the clouds, God says to him. Do you set the stars in their place? Can you bind the beautiful Pilates? Can you loose the, the, the cords of Orion, the constellation? Can you bring forth the constellation in their seasons and lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Do you, Job? Well, it's meant to give us the sense that God is of immense power, awe-inspiring power. Job You're a mere human being. I am God. And God continues, can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Do you do that? Did you do that, Job? Did you do any of that? Well, Job's meant to get that sense, I'm just a human being. God is God. He is powerful. He is in heaven and I'm not. And in a sense, this story we're looking at today, we're so familiar with this story, it's a short story in three of the Gospels, we're meant to get this sense. It's not a Sunday school story. We're meant to get this sense, this is awe-inspiring power on display, God's power on display in front of the disciples. Who can do such a thing? And so let's consider this story. Well, this happens straight after the feeding of the 5,000 or 10,000, how many there were. Now, if you remember, it was already evening, late in, the, in, late in the evening, and once everyone was fed, we learn from John's Gospel, the people were so pleased. I mean, they got a free feed. They were happy. Everyone likes a free feed. They were so happy that they wanted to make Jesus king by force. But you see, they they were wanting something more than they thought. They had no idea what they wanted from Jesus. But then in the Gospels, Jesus would have none of it. He would not bypass the cross to reach glory. He would not bypass the suffering he was to endure to save the world. And so what we read here, Jesus sends off the disciples, get on the boat, get on to the other side of the lake. And then Jesus dismissed the crowd before heading up the mountain to pray. And so have a look, verse 24. Jesus was up in the mountain praying and what were the disciples up to? Well, the boat was already a considerable distance. If you look at the footnote there, it's several stadia. A stadia is 192 metres. Several could be a, a kilometre, two kilometre from land. Buffeted by the waves, we're told, because the wind was against them. 
And so you can imagine, it was evening when the meal finished. Now it's in the middle of the night. They have been struggling hours after hours against the wind and the waves. It was back-breaking rowing. They were struggling to keep the boat steady and stable. You see, that's what happened in the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's actually known geographically, prone to adverse weather because of where it was located. The, the Sea of Galilee it sits about 200 metres below sea level. And so when the cool air comes from the Mediterranean inland, it, it mixes with the hot rising air from the lake and so that causes the water to churn. Uh, storms can start quite suddenly. There's turbulence and, and that was what was happening here. And so you can imagine the disciples alone in the middle of the night, pitch black. They would have been cold and dirty and desperate and drenched and waterlogged and tired and weary and frustrated. They've been wrong for hours and they haven't got to the other side yet. And we see in verse 25, it was the fourth watch of the night. What time is that? Well, According to the Romans, they divided the day into four watches, three-hour blocks. And the fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the middle of night, from in the middle to uh, morning. And so the disciples, if the meal finished at evening, they've been rowing for about six hours, at least six hours. And then what do they see? They're tired, they're cold, they're annoyed, they're frustrated. What do they see? Well, Jesus decides to walk out to them. Literally walking on the rolling waves. Just imagine that scene. It's pitch black, it's dark, and this man comes walking on the waves. And that's nothing less than defying the laws of nature. That was a miracle. You see, what Jesus was actually showing here is he's greater than Moses. In the last miracle, feeding of the 5,000, bread from heaven, Jesus gave a better bread from heaven, greater than Moses. Here, he's shown that he's better than Moses here. What did Moses do in our first reading? Well, he split the sea. They walked through on dry land. Jesus, he, he ups Moses. He walks on the sea. Beat that, Moses. But there are, of course, many who try to explain away this miracle. There are people who try to say that, well, Jesus wasn't really walking uh, on the sea. He was walking in shallow water or even on some sandbank. Some even go as far as to say that Jesus wasn't really walking on the, on the sea, he was walking by the sea. But of course that's not what our passage tells us. It was a miracle, it's meant to give us that sense, like in Job, this is God, his power is on display to me human beings. You know your place, human beings. And of course it, it just doesn't make sense of the passage if, if Jesus was just walking by the sea, not on the sea. It, there were already several kilometres in from from the land, and if Jesus was really walking on the land, there would have been any wouldn't have been any reason for them to be afraid. But you see, this miracle, just like the feeding of the five thousand, this displays the incredible power of Jesus. It's not a cool party trick to fool the kids. This was the astonishing power of Jesus on display. But that wasn't what the disciples first, first thought, was it? What did they say? How did they respond? Well, look at verse 26. They were terrified. They say, it's a ghost. Now, the word here, the original word, is the word we get phantom from. Phantom, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. 
I mean, when I read that, it just, just it was funny, actually. These macho men on a boat, rolling and sweating, and they're fearful, they're frightened. I mean, that's a funny scene. But of course you can understand why these macho men would be crying out in fear. It wasn't because they were wimps. Just imagine the scene again. At least 3 a.m. in the middle of the night, pitch black. The sky was dark. The wind was howling. The waves was crushing. The rain bucketing. And there walking on the waves was a man. Was a man approaching them. Of course you're screaming, it's a ghost. But then adding to this fear was this belief back then that the sea was the home of evil spirits. That was the time they believed the sea was the place of chaos. And in ancient Jewish culture, they did not like the sea at all. They're, they're, even though many of them were fishermen, they, they're not like Australians where swimming comes naturally. They hated the sea. They did not like it. The sea represented chaos and disorder and the place of evil. And growing up, Jewish boys and girls would have heard the story of Jonah and so they would have been frightened by the sea. And so you can understand here, they were frightened seeing a man walking on the waves. Anyone would be. But of course, that display of power there was not that of a ghost, but was that of Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus reveals his identity, who he is. And so Jesus now goes on to say, verse 27, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now there are two things to note from what Jesus says here. Firstly, when God revealed himself in the Old Testament to these people in these Old Testament characters, it was always associated with fear. And so when God appeared to Abraham, God said, Don't be afraid. When God appeared to Isaac, God said, don't be afraid. When God appeared to uh, Isaiah, God said, don't be afraid. And Jesus here produces that same fear in his appearance. And Jesus likewise says, don't be afraid. You see what Jesus is doing? He's associating himself with the God of the Old Testament. And then the second thing to notice here, when Jesus says, it is I, Jesus isn't simply saying, It's not a ghost, you fools. It is me, Jesus, your friend. It is I. It's not that simple, you see. It is I, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew, I am. Now, when have we heard that before? When when God disclosed himself to Moses. I am the great I am. I am. I'm the God of the Old Testament, the God of your forefathers. And so Jesus here identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament, the one who will miraculously deliver his people. And so what's happening in this miracle, this display of power, Jesus was revealing who he was. He was declaring who he was. I am the one, like the one declared in in Job, to Job, I am the one who made the sky and the sea, who sends the wind and the waves. I am the Lord of the universe. You see, just by his display of power, and by what he said. And of course the disciples, if they were faithful Jewish men, know the Old Testament, know their scriptures well, they would know that in the Old Testament it is only God who can walk on water. It's only God in Psalm 77, in Job 9, in Habakkuk 3. It is God alone who can tread on the waves of the sea. You see in this story, the power of Jesus, it reveals his identity 
as nothing less than God in the flesh. And so right there before these men who were afraid was God in the flesh. And so what did the disciples do? Well, Peter, uh, Chris calls him uh, the one with foot and mouth disease and he's a bit like that here as well. Perhaps he was impulsive, a bit rash. He calls out in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. It's strange, isn't it, that he would request that. It's as though he wanted to have a go to do what Jesus was doing. Now, we're not told of his intention, why he asked. We can't know that for sure. But Jesus did. Jesus said, come. And then verse 29 and 30. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. So what happened? Well, well, Peter, he actually did step out in faith. I mean, would you have done that? Step out into the raging sea, walk on water. Well, Peter did. He stepped out in faith. But then his faith was tested. It was challenged. He looked around and he saw, man, I'm standing on waves. The rain is still bucketing down. The, 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 the wind is still howling. And so he got scared and started to sink. But you see, if Jesus really is the great I am, the God of the Old Testament, if Jesus really is divine, there was no reason for Peter to doubt. There was no reason for Peter to lose faith. And so Jesus, what did he do? Verse 31, immediately reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, Jesus calls him. Why did you doubt? Jesus is really saying to Peter, don't you know who I am by now? Can't you see what I'm doing? Why are you of little faith? Why do you doubt? That is, why are you so double-minded? You could have just focused on me. Don't look at the waves. Don't focus on that. Focus on me. Don't you trust me with your life? You see, if Jesus really is the one he reveals himself to be, then he can be trusted and he must be trusted. And so what happened in the end of this story? Verse 32. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Now, often we read that without noticing that. The wind suddenly died down as soon as Jesus embarked on the boat. Early in Matthew, there was another sea crossing. Do you remember that one? There was also a storm. Jesus was asleep. The disciples were afraid. But then Jesus woke up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and it became calm instantly. This time, that same thing happened without Jesus saying anything at all. It died as soon. Jesus went on board. It just makes you think. That boat with the disciples in the presence of Jesus was perhaps at that time the safest place in the whole of the universe. And so what happened? Well, this left the disciples without any doubt who Jesus is. Their faith now resulted in their worship of him. Verse 33. Then those who were there in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. At the first sea crossing, they were questioning, Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now it's becoming clearer. They're saying now, Truly, You are the Son of God. 
Fear has now been replaced with faith and faith now responds in worship. You see, that's the only appropriate response to who Jesus is, the Lord of the universe. When you know that that is his power, the only appropriate response is to worship him. And so that's the story. We know that story, don't we? Many of us have heard it as young children in Sunday school. And it seems quite straightforward, doesn't it? It's about a miracle that displays the power of Jesus. It's about the power that reveals the the identity of Jesus. It's the identity of Jesus revealed that demands faith from the disciples. And it is the faith that now responds in worship. But what does it mean for us today? When we read off the story, we weren't there with the disciples. What are we to make of it? Well, we see that the Bible, as we read it today, we're also drawn into the story. We get to see what the disciples saw. As it's recorded here, as we read it here, we get to see what those disciples saw. And so as we read it, we too are confronted by the person of Jesus. We too come to know Through the eyes of the disciples, we come to know the true identity of Jesus. And of course, who is he? Oh, he's nothing less than God, the Son of God in the flesh. That is Jesus. And so if that is who he is, if he is the Son of God, what does that mean? Well, firstly, for us here in this church, I suspect for a church like ours where we value the scriptures, where evangelicals, that is, we are Bible people, we uphold the Bible as the supreme authority over doctrine and life. That is who we are. That is the flavour of Christianity that we are. And so it means that we know our theology, our minds are well informed. We know that the miracles of Jesus reveals his identity. We know now from this story that he is the son of God. That was what the disciples uh, proclaimed and confessed. And that is what we know. He is the Son of God, the ruler and master of the universe. But the question for us to consider tonight is, does this knowing in our heads translate to believing in our hearts? You know, it's one thing to know in our heads that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's another to believe it in our heart. Are our hearts really convinced that Jesus really is the Son of God? He's shown himself to be the Son of God. Do we really believe that? Do I really trust Jesus with my life? Now, I've been in pastoral ministry for just a bit over four years. It hasn't actually taken me that long to work out that there is no perfect marriage. There's no perfect married family. There's no perfect family. There's no perfect life. Everyone, everyone has some issues that they're struggling with. Everyone has things that are draining them, that are hurting them. Everyone has things that are consuming them. Everyone has things that they're shameful of. And so for all of us, through all the ups and downs, through all the pains and grief of life, and there are, even amongst us here, through all the sorrows and despair, and there are, through all the heartache and hurt, through all the turmoils and the storms of life, Do I really trust Jesus with my life? I know he is the son of God. I know that. My theology is right. My theology is perfect. But do I believe that? 
do I really trust Jesus through all those ups and downs of life that he really is the Son of God? You see, for, for Christians, this should be of great comfort. We should be able to do this, right? We should be able to, despite the circumstances of life despite the trials, despite the loneliness, despite the darkness, despite the storms of life. As Christians, we should be able to, because of what we know, we can still trust in Jesus. We must still depend on Jesus and we will always cling to Jesus. That's what what we must do. And that's the great comfort we have as Christians. There's a guy over these last couple of weeks that I've been trying to pastor and care for. He's a guy who doesn't come to this church but he's a guy who's pretty much given up on life. He just hates his life, hates the lot that he has. And the reason is because three days a week he has to go to the hospital for dialysis. He's there for most of the day, it's tiring, it's a waste of time and then when he goes home he's recovering and then the day after that he's back to the hospital. And so he's just had it. Really had it. He caught him the other day. He's got this, this sense of hopelessness with life. Doesn't like it at all. That was his lot. And he told me just last week, he had to go in for surgery again. But I told him, I told him this, why don't you try turning to God? Why don't you try turning to Jesus, depending on him? Praying for him, praying to him. I'll pray for you as well. If he really is the son of God, the Lord of the universe, and he cares for you, then you can trust him. Turn to him. The other week I spoke with another lady going through some really rough patch in life. And this was quite heartbreaking. Discovered her husband was having an affair. Terrible, terrible. Husband doesn't think anything wrong of it. It's known, it's public, the whole family knows it. But it breaks her heart to have have this feeling of betrayal. They've been together for about 30 years. It breaks her heart that this is the father of their daughters. I said to her, well, why do you try turning to Jesus? He's the son of God, the Lord of the universe. You can turn to him. He cares for you. Trust in him. And in this story, that's what Peter was called to do, wasn't he? I mean, trust in Jesus. Walk out, step out in faith, focus on Jesus, depend on Jesus. And that was what Peter did. He did walk out on the water. That demands faith. But then when that faith wavered, when he started to doubt, when he was looking around and got scared and got afraid, he allowed the circumstances to challenge his focus on Jesus and he started to sink. Well, what did he do? Well, he did the right thing. He actually did the right thing. He didn't think, I'm sinking, but I'll save myself. He didn't try, I'm sinking, but I'm going to swim back to the boat. They can't swim anyway. And so he cried out, Lord, save me. You see, that is faith. That is knowing that Jesus can save. And that is knowing that Jesus will save. And that was what Jesus did for Peter. Peter was soaking wet, scared to death. But Jesus was standing there on the water, stretching his arm out, taking hold of Peter and saving his life from the clutches of death. Peter had the experience of a lifetime. He learned right there and then 
I can trust Jesus with my life. I know who he is in my head. He is the son of God. I can believe it in my heart. But, but you see, for us, it should be more than that. We actually know more than what Peter did at that point anyway. Because what have we seen Jesus do for us? What did Jesus do to save? Well, for Peter, Jesus stretched out his hand as he was sinking, grabbed him from the clutches of death and saved him. What did Jesus, to save the, what did Jesus do to save the world? Well, he stretched out his hand as well. But he stretched it out across on that wooden cross to save us from the clutches of death, to save us, to shed his blood, gave up his life, that we might be saved. You see, if we Christians know that in our heads, we can believe that in our hearts, can't we? And so how can we falter in our trust, in my trust in Jesus? He stretched out his arm on the cross for me. How can I doubt in my convictions in Jesus? He stretched out his arm on the cross for me. How can I be double-minded in my focus and attention on Jesus? He stretched out his arm on the cross for me. Does our knowing translate to our believing? You see, if it does, then it does one more thing. If our knowing translates to our believing, then our believing must also translate to our living. So from knowing to believing to living. Our lives must be conformed by what we believe. It is the head, it is the heart and it is the hands. Our whole life is affected by who Jesus is. Because if Jesus really is the Son of God who died for me, if Jesus really is that and if Jesus is the one who promises by the end of Matthew that he will be with us until the very end of the age, then why is it, why is it that as Christians, as Christians here, we get timid, we get scared, we tremble at our knees when we call to make disciples of nations, when we call to proclaim the news of Jesus to strangers to the world that they might be brought out of darkness into his kingdom. Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? Is it because my faith, my focus has diverted from Jesus, the Son of God, to myself, to my reputation, to, to how I might be perceived. And if Jesus promises, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you, why is it then that as Christians we get concerned, so caught up, so worried, so worked up, so anxious that when we are called to deny ourselves and to carry the cross, to deny our creature comforts, to deny our worldly pleasures, to deny even our career, to deny our self-interest for the sake of the kingdom. Why is it that we don't do that? Why is it that my faith is not there? Is it because my faith has lost focus? No longer on Jesus, but I get concerned by the waves, the circumstances of life, my comfort, my financial security, my goals, my dreams. Not on Jesus, but on me now. Or why is it? Jesus grants us life beyond the grave, resurrection life with God in glory. If we know that, then why is it then as Christians we doubt and we waver? 
when the storms of life comes, when illnesses strike, when tragedy hits, why is it that we waver and doubt? Is it because my faith then, my focus, has diverted from Jesus, the Son of God, to something else, to the waves, to my own self-pity, to my own worries? Is Jesus not the Son of God? We know that in our hearts. And so we can believe that. We know that in our heads. We can believe that in our hearts and we live it out with our hands. If Jesus is the Son of God who walked on the waters, who stretched out his hand, who stretched out his arm on the cross for us, then what do we do? We do what the disciples did. We worship him. We worship him alone. We trust him with our lives. Let's pray.